Let us turn our attention to God's Word this morning, uh, as we already have, but specifically continuing our journey through the book of Revelation. So as our kids make their way down to uh, their lesson, uh, let's be prayerful that they ingest what they're being fed and that we would do the same and lead by example. So let's ask the Lord's help for that. Father, we look to your word this morning and we ask you that you would give us the grace to see it. Uh, Many of us are tired, sleepy, long nights, long week. Maybe we're anxious, we're distracted, we have things barreling down on us, things we're not ready for, Uh, we're not ready for Monday. Um, Help us to see your bigness right now and the smallness of the things that we worry about. Help us to be present to what you have to say this morning, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I was thinking this morning about the importance of hearing the book of Revelation, especially because you know, we're kind of taking our time through it. We're not rushing through it, and I actually have already kind of slowed down the pace that I was, had initially planned for this book. And some of us don't need a pep talk. We love Revelation. We like unpacking symbols and everything like that, and others of us uh, might already, as we're approaching chapter 10, be feeling like, hey, we get it, judgment. <laughs> you know, I get it. Um, but each line, each paragraph, each chapter is put here for a reason. And we need to remind ourselves that these are not the musings of a would-be prophet. These are not the, we're not going through the journals of um, an ancient writer who got some things right, and if you squeeze it hard enough, maybe other things were right. This is, as we say in this church when scriptures read, this is the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Oftentimes we care too much about what other people think that are not God. We live in a, a weird society where uh, companies, politicians, brands think that they can bolster their brand or their marketing by throwing a celebrity up there who has no experience in the thing that they're promoting. But oh, if this actor says it, because we confuse reality with fiction. But interestingly, I just was like, what? You know, I just, I forget what I Googled. What, who cares what celebrities think? I think that's what I put in the search field. And a 2020 Forbes article came up. And here's the title of the article. Dear celebrities, research shows that your political opinions hurt your cause more than help it. I had to click that. So that's a couple years old now, but I think it's still works. This author, uh, this Forbes uh, journalist says it's common for Hollywood stars to share their opinions just about every political and social issue in order to sway a multitude of voters. But surprise, studies show that most voters care very little about what celebrities think and astonishingly their efforts often have the opposite effect. Quoting one survey, I think that was focused in the U.S., 65% of respondents said that political endorsements from Hollywood celebrities have no bearing on their voting decisions. 65%, I just don't care, one way or the other. But most surprising is 24% said that celebrity endorsements would make them less likely to vote for the celebrity's preferred candidate. 
Only 11% said that a celebrity endorsement would make them more likely to vote for that candidate. Uh, Another uh, survey in in Britain came up with this statistic, 63, similar, 63% of Britons believe that celebrity opinions made no difference. 25% said celebrity opinions had a negative effect. Only 5% said it had a positive effect. Now listen, this is interesting, I think. Studies as far back as 2007 found similar results that while celebrity endorsements may raise awareness for a candidate, family members and significant others are far more influential than celebrities when it comes to preference for a political Now, the reason why I find that surprising is that I thought they were going to contrast celebrities with experts people who know nothing about what they're talking about with people who know something about what they're talking about. But that's not the contrast that they found. What they found, the contrast was, is celebrities, not as non-experts, but as, I don't know you. And what was the contrast with? Family members and significant others. Are they experts? Is Uncle Frank around the Thanksgiving table? As much as he has to say about politics. Is he an expert, though? Probably not. But if you love your uncle, or at least respect your uncle, and there's a relationship there, there's influence there. It's the relational piece, not just the expert piece. Why am I going into all this? The reason why I'm going into all this is because uh, the opening of Revelation, verse 3, says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So the, the book of Revelation isn't for end times nerds. The book of Revelation is to bless God's people, but it only blesses God's people if you take it, not as some some ancient work of Nostradamus, as God's word. And if you actually take it as God's word, you're not just taking it because, well, God must be the expert. If he's sovereign and omniscient, he must be the expert. He knows all things. He knows what's coming. He knows what's happening. So let me turn to him for the expert knowledge of what's happening. It's got to be beyond that. He needs to be the dad at the table that you trust. That's why it says, blessed are those not just who hear the words of the prophecy, not just those who read the words of the prophecy, but who keep what is written in it. If we read the book of Revelation and we don't think that there's anything to take away from it in, in terms of obedience, to keep it, keep it doesn't mean buy 14 whiteboards, put them in your basement, and nail down the timeline. Keeping it means obey what it's telling us to do. So when we walk away from Revelation going, okay, I have more expert knowledge on what's going to happen next year. We're missing it. We're missing it. But if we walk away from Revelation going, okay, I have expert knowledge from the Father on how he expects me to live no matter what happens next year, then we're in line with what the book of Revelation is teaching us. So with that in mind and hopefully with our hearts prepped, to dive into Revelation chapter 10. Let's go there now. Revelation chapter 10. And as we turn to Revelation chapter 10, what we see here is that God does reveal to us, his children, the church, God does reveal to us in Revelation. And what he reveals to us in Revelation is true, but it's limited. It's authoritative, but it's not everything. Let's look at it one piece at a time. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read all of chapter 10. Let's get it in front of us, and then we'll back up and take it one piece at a time. 
John says, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. But that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who was standing on the land, or on the sea and on the land. Verse 9. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it in my stomach, uh, was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Lots to unpack there, but the first thing that we notice here is God is continuing to roll out this revelation to John. John is supposed to take that and deliver it to the church. And we see this imagery again that that is striking the note of uh, these are not just little love notes. These These are authoritative, sovereign words from God that we are supposed to take seriously. And so we don't want to just go, ah, people don't agree on things, I give up. We, we don't study 65 books of Scripture. Blessed are those who read and keep this prophecy. So it's revealed to us with authority. We see that in the opening verses. We see this uh, mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, his face is like the sun, legs are like pillars of fire. And then in his hand, he's got a little scroll. In his hand, he's got a little scroll. And I think this scroll represents, it's the book of Revelation. It's what God gives John to write down and then deliver to the church. That's what you have in your lap right now. I believe that this scroll is a scroll that we've already been introduced to earlier when we saw the opening of the seven seals on that original scroll. The last time we saw a mighty angel, as he says, Another mighty angel coming down in chapter 10. The last time we saw a mighty angel was in chapter 5. And that's the mighty angel, if you remember, who asked, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? We were about to open the scroll, but no one's able to open it. I'd like to deliver a word to my people about the end of times and about judgment and about how things are going to end and how things are going to be wrapped up and how the church is eventually going to be victorious. I would love to open that up, but I can't open that up because there's nobody to open it says the mighty angel. Well, then Jesus, the lamb, he takes the scroll and he goes pop, pop, pop. He starts opening the scroll, right? One seal at a time. 
And now that scroll is open. So now we return to a mighty angel in verse 1 of chapter 10. And the mighty angel goes, okay, now it's open. So I think it's the same scroll that we've been looking at. And I think we just see it as the revelation that God is giving John to warn his people, encourage his people, both. Jesus opened the seals. Now we have the open scroll back in the hands of an angel who's ready to give it to the prophet. The prophet gives it to the people. Um, some people get caught up on the fact that, but this is a little scroll. It didn't say little before. And I don't want to spend a whole long time on that, but it seems that a lot of people seem to get caught up on that. Um, but it's not like the first scroll was described as big. They said that one was big. It's not a contradiction. First one said scroll. This one says little scroll. Okay. It's not a contradiction. Uh, maybe here it's little because it's in contrast with this humongous angel who one foot is in the sea and the other foot is on the land. Just try to imagine the vision that John is seeing there, the size of this mighty angel. There's no need to see it as a different scroll just because it says uh, little. Maybe it's a little because it's edible. We just read John is about to eat this thing. Um, And oftentimes, even English translations swap out little book with book, even in chapter 10 in the Greek manuscript. Sometimes it's it's swapped out because it's just one word that's very similar. It's kind of like book and booklet. It's, it's very easy to switch out. Uh, so I think this is the same scroll we're tracking. We had to open the seals. The seals have been opening, and those seals kicked off trumpets, and now this thing is open, and he wants to deliver it to uh, John so that John can take an open scroll, not a sealed scroll, to the people so we can benefit from the book of Revelation as we've been doing in this series. And so, in chapter 1, verse 1, we see that the revelation is given from God to Jesus, to angels, to John. You see this sort of chain, and we're picking up there in Revelation 4 through 5. God gives the scroll to Jesus. Jesus opens the seals. So here it makes sense that Jesus now gives it back to a mighty angel who now gives it to John. We're following the sequence that we started in Revelation chapter 1. Okay. Some of you are like, I was with you as soon as you said it's the same scroll. Fine, that's great. Others of you are like, I need to go back because I'm not sure. Uh, at the end of the day, this is, a, this is a scene where the message is coming to John, not from his own musings and his own thoughts. He's not just making stuff up. He is receiving a message from the Lord. And that message from the Lord is communicated even in his servant with the kind of authority that belongs only to God. This is why the imagery of the angel is wrapped in a cloud. There's a rainbow over his head. His face is shining like the sun. His legs are like pillars of fire. Well, how mighty is this angel? Well, the angel has the might of the Lord, apparently, because those are symbols that are used of the Lord in Revelation and throughout Scripture. So much so that some say this angel has to be Christ himself. That's a possible interpretation. I don't think we have to uh, take it there. Christ is never referred to as an angel anywhere else in Revelation, so that would be kind of weird. And notice, last time John saw Jesus, what was his reaction? Fell on the floor. Here he's like, give me the scroll. Did you see that at the end? He was like, tell the angel to take the scroll. He was like, give me that scroll. I, was like, well, I don't think he would tell Jesus. Give Jesus an imperative. Uh, to hand him the scroll. Anyway, I think it's a representative, and these angels are mighty only because they have delegated power, and it is power that represents the, uh, the sheer authority of God in these images with the pillars of fire and the rainbow and the cloud. It's, 
It's beautiful, ominous, there's splendor, there's weight. And so this is not something that we want to stuff underneath our mattress and go back to our fantasy leagues. It is the word of the Lord. So these Christological symbols point to him receiving this authority, this authoritative word, so that we can learn from it. The angel stands. How does the angel stand? One, earth, one foot in the sea, one foot on the, the land, representing God's sovereignty over all the globe. This is for everybody. And God is in charge of all things that transpire on this globe. And as we'll see, this message is intended for everyone, everywhere. And what's being revealed is, as I've said numerous times already, it is the word of the Lord, or we can say it is the very voice of the Lord. You'll notice that when the angel calls out, seven thunders sound, and those seven thunders that sound, I think, are God's voice. We can see, we'll put this up on the screen just briefly, Psalm 29, for similar imagery of the Lord's voice. I had to shrink the font a little bit, so put your glasses on or your Bring your binoculars. I don't, I don't know. I try to get it legible. But this is all of Psalm 29, 11 verses. Uh, ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in splendor of holiness. Then his voice sounds. And what's his voice like? His voice is like verse 3. Uh, his voice is like thunder. And it's so powerful. Verse 5, it breaks the trees. Uh, verse 6, it makes the, the animals run. It puts them into, in flight. Verse 7, it's like lightning. It flashes forth. So his voice is like thunder and lightning. Okay, it is loud. You can't miss it. It's, there's an ominous aspect to it because it's related to judgment. Uh, but notice, we'll put the next slide. Same thing, but uh, those are the things I pointed out that channel the, that aspect of thunder and lightning. And now let's look at the, the, the third slide here. Okay, the voice of the Lord is repeated seven times. So here we have this number of perfection, of completeness, understanding that God speaks and he speaks what is perfect. He doesn't speak 80% of what is perfect and he doesn't overspeak. Oh, you gave us too much. You should have left that at 65 books, God. We're quite confused. No, he, he speaks what is perfect. And so this thunderous uh, sound appears in these seven thunders, which is the voice of the Lord, but he's told to not write it down. Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. So he, he was about to write it down, he said in verse 4, I was about to write and then he hears a voice. So I think here he's out of the vision and he's in his studio, right, where he's allowed to write some things down. Not a very nice studio. I'm being facetious. Uh, and he's about to write down as he's doing with everything else in Revelation. And then he hears a voice telling him, don't write that down. That stays sealed up. No one's going to open those seals. That is not for people to know. And so let me just point something out here, brothers and sisters, that I hope is encouraging to you. It might seem like a struggle to interpret the book of Revelation, like it's hard. I'm not up here going, I remember taking a class in Revelation at Trinity, and the professor started the class with going, Revelation is just really not hard. I was like, oh, thank you, God, I'm finally going to get clarity. I left there more confused than when I went in. I'm like, what? I thought you just said it was easy. 
It's not easy. And it might seem like a struggle to interpret Revelation, but overall, be encouraged. There is broad agreement on what the seven seals are. There's broad agreement on what the seven trumpets are. There's broad agreement on what the seven bowls are. A lot of, you know, sometimes the debates center on timing and is it chronological and what's Israel's role in it. But overall, Christians, Christians have broad agreement on those the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven thunders, or the seven bowls. But what about the seven thunders? They, they must mean something. But we, we have nothing to interpret because those, we, we are on a need-to-know basis with God. We are on a need-to-know basis with God. And those we don't need to know. Meaning, this is how much was revealed to John but John is only allowed to give us this much of it. And so this is especially a problem for those that feel like they can chart out a chronological timeline and pinpoint when Jesus is coming back. Hello, you don't have all the information. You don't have all the information. And so when we recognize that we don't have all the information, we can't get it to the precision of Getting to that point of heresy, thank God that we are protected from that if we just consider the fact that you don't have all that you need to put it together with that kind of precision. That doesn't mean we can't put things together. It just means we always have to have room for question marks, and that's okay. There's room for question marks because we haven't been given everything. And we need to be okay not knowing something. Might those seven thunders relate to some things in life and in the world that we don't have full answers to? Probably. They don't mean nothing. They mean something. They just haven't been given to us. He could have written them down, but then he was told not to. So there's content. It's just not available. It's in the top secret file, and you don't have the clearance. And we need to be okay with that. We need to be all right with that. We serve a good father. Now, some fathers are too secretive. Some fathers withhold too many things that would serve to benefit their children. They just don't like talking about their past and they don't like bringing up uncomfortable things. Don't be a coward. Some things you need to bring to your children that are difficult. That's why the Bible is full of difficult things and the father brings them to us. Yes, they're difficult, but we need to hear them. Other fathers are too undiscerning and they let their kids see and hear things much too early to benefit them at all. So you don't just vomit up whatever comes to your mind when your kids are at the table with you. You're discerning because you're a wise father, we hope. And so our Heavenly Father reveals just enough about the end times that is good for us. Not everything. Just enough that is good for us. Some of you have read The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom, and she recounts a conversation she had with her father on the train. I love this little anecdote. She was a small child, and during a train ride, her father was a watchmaker, and they were coming back from a, a business transaction. And during a trade ri- train ride, Corey Ten Boom asked her father a question about, uh, we'll say, physical intimacy. And in his opinion, she was too young to grasp uh, the answer to that question. So when she asked, the father looked at her but said nothing, she writes, And finally, he stood up, reached for his briefcase, and set it on the floor before her. Will you carry it off the train, Corey? She stood up and tugged at the briefcase. It was crammed with the watches and spare parts that he had purchased that morning. 
It's too heavy, she said. He replied, yes, and it would be a pretty poor father who would ask his little girl to carry such a load. It's the same way, Corey, with knowledge. Some knowledge is too heavy for children. When you are older and stronger, you can bear it. For now, you must trust me to carry it for you. I think it's easy to skip past the seven thunders. Like, oh, seven thunders, and they weren't given to us. Why even tell us there's something that's not given to us if it's not going to be given to us? I think because it's God's way of communicating this scene. Some briefcases you can't lift. I got it, though. It's not going to be left behind on the train. I got it. You carry what's carryable for you, and I'll take the rest. And so I thank God that we don't have 600 books of the Bible. I thank God that Revelation is as short as it is. It's enough for us to mine it and dig into it and study it. And if we're going to be honest, we have no business asking God for more in the book of Revelation when it's been 20 years since you've cracked the book of Ruth. Let's study what he gives us and be content with what he lays out in front of us. That is enough to give us and fortify us for what we need for no matter what happens tomorrow, next week, next year, next decade. We're given enough to fortify us. And so as we study the book of Revelation, we don't want to fall off on one end where we don't study it because it's too difficult. These are the words of the Lord, but we don't want to study it to the point where we are at pains for more when the Lord has, in his wisdom, given us less. So, our Father, knowing that we're intrigued with understanding the times, the end times, knowing that it's good for us to hear from our Father about the times that we live in, the times that are coming, how God is going to rescue his people, he gives us just what we need and no more. So, what do we know? What do we know for sure? We know enough to trust that God will surely usher in the final judgment on his right timing. We know enough that judgment is for real, judgment is sure, a final judgment is definitely coming, and his people will be protected from that judgment. We know that. And so we see that affirmed in 5 through 7. He wasn't told that he couldn't write anything down. He was only told he couldn't write that little portion down, and the rest of it is what is given to us and is revealed to us. And so the angel almost reenacts a scene from... um, Daniel chapter 12, where an angel there swears by the Lord that this, this time that he's prophesying, that he's giving Daniel to prophesy, will come to an end. And so here we see the angel promise and swear that the delay won't be forever. And the angel, verse 5, whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land, raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. Similar emphasis from Daniel 12. But that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. And so as we unpack that briefly, if you go back to Daniel chapter 12, that angel swears by him who lives forever. This angel ramps it up. He starts with that and says, he swears by him who lives forever, and look at all the stuff he adds to it. 
You know him who lives forever, the one who created heaven and everything that's inside of heaven. He who created the earth and everything that is inside of the earth, who created the sea and everything that is inside of the sea. He's, he's ramping up the one who lives forever. He doesn't live forever because he's some celestial being and he's out there way far away from us. But us is his. And you can't move away from it. You can't come out from underneath the gaze of God's sovereignty. All of earth, all of land, all of sea, the entire universe, the heavens and the earth and the sea, and every single creature, everything that draws breath within those things is underneath God's sovereignty. Nothing is outside of his control. And so we see him emphasizing this so that all that God gives us, he understands, he's giving it to us as the father who's able to deliver on what he promises. And that when it sounds like it's delayed and we go, man, we got this 2,000 years ago, what's going on? We've been told the church is growing. It's going to grow to the point where he's done growing it. And the martyrs are going to be martyred. Christians are going to be killed until a final number of martyrs comes in. And he knows what the number is. That goes in the top, the top secret briefcase as well. God is not forgetful. He's not asleep. He's not taking a nap. He didn't go on vacation. It's his perfect timing. He sees it all. He knows it all. He's over it all. Even his angel stands over it. And so we can trust that his timing is perfect and that it's going to be done right. And so when he swears to the one who is able to do it, He's saying, it will be done. Then verse 7, we see there will come a time when the delay will be over and all the mystery of God will be revealed. He refers to everything that all the prophets had announced in verse 7, right? Just as he announced to his servants, the prophets, all the prophets that have been writing things down, the entire scripture that we have in front of us ties directly to that same mystery. And of course... When the Bible uses the word mystery, it doesn't mean like a mystery novel. It's not a whodunit, where you kind of just read the last chapter of Revelation. Oh, it was Jesus the whole time. You get that way before. And of course, that unravels little by little. You get hints of it beginning in Genesis 3, when God promises that the serpent will be conquered, but will be conquered through the birth of a child from the mother. That child is going to crush the serpent. And then you get Abraham, who's unable to have a child, and God goes, I'm going to miraculously give you a child. And you're like, is this randomly switching stories? No, you're wondering, is this that child? Is this that child who's going to deliver us from the bite of the serpent? And then Revelation channels that, right? The horses are running around, the horses running around with snake tails, deceiving people and biting people, but they can't touch Christ elect. And so from Genesis to Revelation, you get this unraveling of this mystery, not in a whodunit thriller way, but in a way where step by step, you see greater insight into how God is going to solve the world's problem of sin, death, and estrangement from himself. And that answer is in Jesus Christ. That didn't start with the Gospel of Matthew. It's all the prophets, verse 7, this mystery going and pushing through all of it. In fact, interestingly, uh, this verse here 
that says that uh, the mystery of God would be revealed just as God announced to all his prophets. The word in the Greek for announced is evangelize. The mystery is not, who's the Antichrist? The mystery that presses through scripture is who's the Savior? And the answer is Jesus Christ. That's the mystery that is revealed throughout Scripture, and that is the good news that he pressed upon his prophets all the way from Genesis all the way through the book of Revelation. That is good news. But that good news contains bad news, right? It's good news for those who recognize that we're in trouble and we need to repent and we need Christ to save us, but for others, they reject that initial bad news of sin and responsibility to God. They reject him, and so they don't receive the good news. So therefore, the mystery is double-edged, right? It saves some, but it just exposes the condemnation of those who reject the truth that we need to be saved. And so it's a message of hope. It's a message of judgment. It's a message of salvation. It's a message of condemnation. It's a message of grace. It's also a message of wrath. Together at the same time. And the one who is blessed by the prophecy recognizes both edges of the sword. I recognize that God's wrath is on me and it is right. And I repent. But I also recognize there's hope available in Jesus Christ. And I cling to him and I grasp him for my hope and salvation And so the book of Revelation is dark, but for some it's only dark. But for those of us who are blessed by the words of the prophecy, it is dark and light. And I think think that's what this vision is getting at with the bitter and sweet scroll. And as you look through 8 through 11, the voice comes to him again, says, go take the scroll that is open, this open scroll now. The Lord opened it. It's open in the hand of the angel who was standing on the sea and on the land. And so I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. This bitter and sweet, I think, is the book of Revelation. All of Scripture, in fact, anything that channels that grand mystery of God, that good news of God, is not good news to everyone. Some only take it as bad news, or they just reject it as news altogether. So Revelation is given to us as a sure, it's true, it's limited. He doesn't give us the top secret stuff, but what he does give us is sure, and it's true, but it's bittersweet. It's a bittersweet testimony for people Everywhere, verse 11, I told and I was told you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Again, this is the same scroll as Revelation 5, I think, with the seven seals now open, ready to be delivered. And he's going to deliver it like Ezekiel the prophet by eating it, ingesting it, and then taking it to the people to whom he's going to go prophesy. Like Ezekiel's scroll, this scroll is written on the back and on the front, we were told in Revelation chapter 5. And as with Ezekiel, John is told to eat the scroll, and as he eats it, it tastes sweet, probably referencing passages that refer to God's word as sweet, like Psalm 119, 103. It goes down sweet, but then it hits bitter. 
Ezekiel's went down sweet too. It didn't say it hit his stomach bitter. Here it tells us it hits John's stomach as bitter. But Ezekiel's message was bitter. Ezekiel's message was sour because written on it, Ezekiel 2.10, written on it were what? Lamentations, mourning, and woe. And then we're told in Ezekiel 3, the house of Israel would not listen to it as the Lord warned Ezekiel. They're not going to listen to it. So it'll only be bad news. It's not going to be received as full-on good news. And so the message of Revelation is sweet because it provides ultimate hope to those who trust in Christ. We're overcomers in the end, and that applies, that sweetness goes out to all the world. That sweetness goes out to everybody. You don't have to flip there. It's in Revelation, but we'll put this up here. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, Revelation 14, 6. We're reminded that God elects from everywhere. And you see this here. Your blood ransomed people for God from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation, right? We see it, we'll see it again in 14.6. Then I saw another angel fly directly overhead with an eternal gospel. Gospel means good news. There's the word again. To proclaim to those who dwell on earth to every nation and tribe and language and people. And so we see this good news reaching out to everybody, not just one pocket, not just one ethnicity, not just one land, but globally going out so that people all over can receive it as good news. The book of Revelation should prompt a missional heart that recognizes there are no people that are outside of God's reach. And that's an amazing truth that we cling to. However, the message of Revelation is not only sweet, it is also bitter. It is also sour. Why? Because it warns of judgment upon unbelievers and it talks about persecution of the church. There's hard stuff in it. The focus here, as we saw there a moment ago, we saw the emphasis of the gospel going out to every tribe, language, people, nation. Tribe, language, people, nation, right? Tribe, language, people, nation, everywhere. Now look at verse 11, right in front of you in chapter 10. People, nation, languages, tribe is missing. Tribe is replaced with kings. And when you read through the book of Revelation, kings are almost always bad guys. They're in league with the enemy. They, just like Psalm 2, they rise against the sun. And so I think that's dropping a hint like, yes, there's good news going out for people everywhere, but also recognize not everyone everywhere is going to stand with it. There are those who are going to stand against it. And that's why we, we have this battle going on ensuing that involves, it does involve politicians and policies and governors and kings and rulers and armies. It involves all of that because they are not uh, in league with the Lord as they should be, but instead they're in league with the enemy. So both are true. This message is for everyone everywhere. Some will receive it and accept it, believing on Christ in repentance and taking refuge in the cross for salvation. Others will reject it and spurn any such refuge from God's wrath. So for some, this is a sweet word. For others, it makes your stomach bitter. Now we don't change it and go, ah, I know this is going to hit bitter, so let me adjust it. 
Let me make it a sweet gospel. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. There's only curses for that. But as is, what God has revealed, said this is in the briefcase you can't look at. This is in the briefcase you are able to lift and open and read. So read it and deliver it and take it to people and don't adjust it. Some it'll hit sweet, some it'll hit bitter. It has difficulties in it. There's darkness in it, but there's also hope and light in it. And you deliver it to the people. When God told Ezekiel, as he told Isaiah in chapter 6, here's this message. Are you ready? He's like, yeah, send me. He's like, take this message out, and it's going to be completely unsuccessful. Where Ezekiel and Isaiah are like, nah, never mind. Now, how many of us would be up for a task that's going to fail? Here, do this task, and it's not going to work. What do you mean it's not going to work? Well, I'm going to give you this task, tell you to do it, expect you to do it, and do it well, but it's going to fail. But what? That was Ezekiel's job. That was Isaiah's job. Except differently, he did help Isaiah and Ezekiel say that that failure is immediate, but there are other ramifications later that are good. And what we get in the book of Revelation is that, yes, for some, they close the door, they hate it, we get arrested, Christians get killed, but there's always going to be some that take it as sweet as it expands across the globe. So we don't adjust it, and we don't change it, and we don't surmise whether it's going to be successful or not. We just take it. We take it out, and we deliver it. And whether or not somebody receives it, that's on God. Back to his other briefcase. Who does he seal up? Who does he elect? The better question is, whose business is that? God's. We take that big bag of seed, and we throw it out on the soil, and let God take care of it while we take a nap, a lesser-known parable of Jesus. Sower sows and goes to sleep. Wakes up in the morning. God took care of the growth, right? So we don't adjust it. It's stomach-churning stuff sometimes, but it's also hopeful and it's endearing. And we recognize that as we continue to press through the book of Revelation, hey, we don't come to church to escape reality. We come to be equipped for it by what exactly God gives us to equip us for it. Let's pray. Father, we come to you hopeful that as we continue to study your word, do our best with it, handling all these symbols and images uh, and the vision that you granted John. Lord, we pray that through all of it, even on the things that we're not completely sure of yet, on the things that we're not even given to us at all to study. Help us to be sure of the, the things that are clear and that you are sovereign, that this world is not randomly going along, but uh, fits within your plan and your oversight. And you, all the evil that we see does break your heart and you're grieved by it. Um, you're also not up there doing nothing about it as well. So we trust you. As we close in this song, we pray that you would build that trust in us, Father, so that we can walk around not scared, also not ignoring things, uh, seeing the truth, and communicating to the lost uh, that there is hope to be found in Jesus Christ. Fortify us with that even now as we close in a song. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.